Hello again, this is Gary Meese with the case against. We're going to be moving further along into the case of the West Memphis Three. We're on episode 67. And I could see us actually wrapping up at least this portion of the podcast concerning this case before very long. Uh, we're getting close to the end. I've written three books in the case, including one volume that's a combined, condensed, revised version called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. The earlier two volumes were uh, Blood on Black and Where the Monsters Go. We're getting close to the end of the second volume of Where the Monsters Go. We've basically explained how all three of the teenagers who were charged in the case had no viable alibis. We spent a lot of time with that in the last few months. And uh, we're about to get into uh, some things concerning the court presentation, uh, Paradise Lost, and um, Damien Echols' mental state at the time of the trial as Uh, explained by his own defense witnesses. And so we will commence with that. The three books are available on um, Amazon in Kindle and print format. The case involves the murders of three little boys all eight years old, Michael Moore, Christopher Byers, and Stevie Branch on May 5th, 1993 in West Memphis, Arkansas. Uh, They went missing uh, on May 5th. Their bodies were found on May 6th in a wooded area. They had been placed in a ditch. Their bodies had been placed in a ditch. They were nude. They were bound in an, an unusual manner. Uh, one of the boys had been sexually mutilated, another one had his face cut, they'd all been horribly beaten and otherwise mistreated. And uh, after a month of investigation, a a teenager named Damien Eccles quickly became a viable suspect because he was seen leaving the scene of the crime because his alibis didn't add up, because he made incriminating statements to, or suspicious statements to uh, police in his questionnaire and a follow-up interview. And because a lot of people were pointing at him saying he was capable of doing it, they also had a confession from a friend prior to his arrest. They also had a confession from a friend of his that he had... He had supposedly confessed to this friend that he was involved in the case without giving a lot of examples. Um, So he was was by far the most viable suspect, but he was by no means the only suspect they had in the case at the time, or the only person of interest they had in the case at the time. They were looking at a lot of other people. Uh, The idea that was focused exclusively on Damien Eccles is often touted, but it's not true and now we're going to get in into uh, 
it was Damien, uh, Jason Baldwin was his 60-year-old best friend, and Jesse Miskelly Jr. Uh, was certainly at least an acquaintance that they he piled that the other two boys piled around with, and might be going too far to state that uh, they were friends. But uh, Jason Baldwin himself described Jesse Miskelly as a, 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 one of his best friends, and uh, some of the people who knew Damien very well described Miss Skelly and independently and prior to the arrest of Miss Skelly being a friend of uh, Jace, of uh, Damien Eccles. So it's not as if they didn't know each other as often or barely knew each other as, as often averred. It's not true at all. Um, from the time the Miss Skelly defense team one severance from Eccles and Baldwin, the case could have taken some strange twist, particularly if Miskelly had agreed to testify. Now, Miskelly's case, because he confessed, and so he would be, essentially his confession would be used, could be used against his co-defendants uh, in such a way that uh, it would compromise their own ability to defend themselves because they, because they wouldn't be able to really... Uh, uh, address their address the uh, accuser as they is their is their right the, the the cases are split off and Bones wanted very much his team very wanted very much to get have have his case split off from Eccles and would have been much to his benefit since Eccles really did worked really hard to Eccles and his family worked really hard to incriminate Eccles. Uh, without meaning to, but that that is in fact what they did. And uh, while Baldwin's had virtually no defense, and really there was a fairly weak, a fairly weak case as far as what was presented at trial against Jason Baldwin. It was enough to justify uh, a conviction. And, and the totality of the evidence outside the court certainly indicates his guilt. But I'm not going to ever argue that while they had a really great case against, I think they had a really good case against uh, Jesse Miskelly. I think they had a pretty good case against Damian Eccles. And I think they had a really poor case against Jason Baldwin. But Baldwin, because of his association with Eccles, he, uh, he did get pulled into, you know, he did get pulled into the case not because of his association with Eccles, but because what Jason uh, Jesse Miskelly described Baldwin doing, which is attacking two of the boys with a knife and otherwise participating in, you know, sexually molesting these boy these little boys, and otherwise otherwise committing all these crimes. Uh, he was arrested. Certainly had probable cause for arrest, and. They, the case would have been pretty weak against Baldwin without the testimony of a, a young man named Michael Carson who was um, incarcerated with him in a juvenile facility in Jonesboro for uh, a, short, a relatively short period of time. Baldwin was in there quite a bit of time. Uh, Michael Carson was in there for a week or so. And, and was you know, he sh was shuttled through the system, but he described 
Baldwin confessing to him, and that was the main evidence against direct evidence against uh, Baldwin. I shouldn't have said direct evidence, but it was the main evidence against Baldwin. Uh, from and you know we can see if Miskelly had testified, so they had these trials split off. There was a lot of negotiations going on. Miskelly had his trial first in 1994, February, and then shortly thereafter, Eccles and Baldwin were due to have their trial. And there were a lot of negotiations back and forth about when Miskelly was easily convicted. And he proceeded to confess a t time and again, but he would not agree to testify against um, Eccles and Baldwin. If he had, it would have been a very different trial, to say the least. And he probably could have worked out a more favorable deal to him for himself at some point. I'm sure he could have. Uh, Dan Stidham probably could have worked out a more favorable deal for Jesse Miskelly way back in the summer sometime if he'd been so motivated. Uh, but, you know, he decided he was going to win the case for Jesse Miskelly, and of course he did not. He was, his uh, defense was thoroughly inept throughout. And, uh, But Miskelly ended up not not testifying against Eccles and Baldwin, despite all these confessions. And jury selection in the Eccles-Baldwin trial began on February 22, 1994, uh, but was briefly put on hold as the court considered and rejected allegations of prosecutorial, prosecutorial misconduct in attempts to get Miskelly to testify against the other two. <coughs> Jury selection was completed February 25th. The trial began Monday, February 28th. After 11 days at trial, the defense and prosecution rested their cases on March 15th, and jury deliberations began Thursday, March 17th. I know we've talked a lot about what was said in trial up to this point. The jurors listed pluses and minuses. Eccles was a disaster on the stand and left a very bad impression. The jury listed his negatives as something to gain, dishonest, manipulative, weird, satanic follower, Anton LaVey, Aleister Crowley, fiber batch, incriminating testimony, Ridge too close to facts, Ridge being Brian Ridge, a detective in the case, what he testified to concerning uh, statements that uh, Eccles had made to him being too close to the facts, let's presume. Blue kisses to parents, which is his courtroom behavior, the blowing kisses to the parents of the dead children. Obviously, it doesn't convict him of murder, but it gives you, the, consider the context, it gives you an idea of the kind of uh, defendant that Eccles was. Not a good one. 
traveled to crime scene 200 times over two years and lied about it. In other words, he, he said he never went there and then turned around and described going through there several times a week over several years. He carried knives. Knives were used in the killings. Lied during testimony. Inappropriate thought patterns. No credible witness. We're talking about defense witness. Eat father alive. A description of uh, one of his psychotic episodes that landed in a mental hospital where he threatened to eat his father alive. In the same episode, he threatened to cut his mother's throat. He threatened to commit suicide. Uh, he was he often pulled such stunts and some of it was, apparently was for attention and some of it perhaps and he was drunk at the time apparently and some of it was just authentically acting out apparently wax on book shirt mention I'm not sure what the mention is but there was wax wax blue wax that was found on a book at his a book found at his home that was similar to wax that was found on a t-shirt of one of the boys. Those were listed as his negatives. They did have a few positives, a few pluses. Intelligent, manic depressant, which isn't really a plus. Stuck to story which again might not really be a plus if it's a bad story, but he did stick to his story and loyal family. I mean, let's say right here, Eccles did have a loyal family. The problem is for the loyal family is the object to their loyalty has never been loyal to them. Uh, now for Baldwin, uh, the pluses included he was in school, Stuck to story. He didn't really have a story, but they say he stuck to story. And exhibited remorse. And again, there's not really that much evidence that he really exhibited remorse, but he certainly didn't put on the sort of defiant showboat behavior that uh, Damien Eccles pulled, off, pulled in the courtroom. And while his negatives were Damien best friend, jailhouse confession, low self-esteem, Fiber match, knife, and frequented crime scene. Now, the fiber match, there was a, a red fiber found at the scene that matched a, a fiber from Jason's mother's bathrobe. Not strong evidence. It's physical evidence. It's not true that there's no physical evidence in the case. There's not very much, but there is some, and that is one of the things that's physical evidence. And you can discount it, argue it away, say it's not good evidence. I wouldn't even particularly disagree with that, but it is evidence. And, uh, and the knife referred to the lake knife, so-called lake knife, the knife that was found behind his home in November. The crime com was committed in May. There was a tip that in the lake behind his trailer home <coughs> in what is known as Lakeshore Stage, which is a trailer park between West Memphis and Marion, Arkansas, that, that, that the 
that uh, there was a, a knife in there that perhaps had been involved in the killing. Uh, divers went in there, police divers went in there, and you know, after about an hour or so of swimming around, they found this knife sticking up. It's not some sort of amazing discovery. It was a, it's a fairly shallow, it's not really much of a lake. It's more of a, a shallow uh, pond that gathers drainage. Uh, most of the time that I saw it, and I've been there several times, it was scummy and green in the summertime. I don't think I ever really got that close to it in the winter, and I'm assuming it was not so scummy then. Uh, and... Uh, and he, he said he frequented the crime scene. Well, there's not really much evidence that he actually frequented the crime scene either. But that's what the jury had the impression of. Uh, the jury reached its verdict that Friday afternoon. The jury found both Eccles and Baldwin guilty of the capital murders of all three victims. And you can see there's not really a whole lot here that's uh, as far as incriminating uh incriminating things against Baldwin. Uh, his best friend, jailhouse confession, the fiber match and the knife. There's quite a bit more about uh, Damien Eccles and there's some evidence that they don't allude to in these, these negatives that uh, I think should have been there like the test, the, the jurors did find the testimony of two members of the so-called Hollingsworth clan to be uh, credible that they had seen Damien Eccles walking away from the scene of the crime that evening in muddy clothing. But it didn't make the big list, it made the list of how they perceived those particular witnesses. Um, now what happened during the penalty phase of the trial which is where they, after they determine that he's guilty, they decide what the, the penalty is going to be for the guilt. That's uh, a, a bifurcated uh, approach to death penalty cases generally, where they decide whether they're going to give a death penalty or, or a life sentence or some other mitigated sentence. Uh, a psychiatric file that has since become known as Exhibit 500, which was compiled by the defense. This psychiatric file came to light and it detailed Damien Eccles' mental health problems in great detail. The papers documented Eccles' three stays at psychiatric hospitals, his counseling sessions, and application for Social Security disability in the year leading up to the killings. Now, the file was compiled by Inquisitor Incorporated, a private investigative firm owned by a private detective named Ron Lax. Uh, the private detective who died in 2013 was portrayed by Colin Firth in a recent, very bad, dramatized film about the case, Devil's Knot, which was very loosely based on a book by the Arkansas journalist Marl Leverett. Amara Leverett's book is all about how she, uh, all, mostly a great deal of innuendo. It's a presentation of the defense side of things and a great deal of innuendo about how the late Mark Byers 
was the most viable suspect in the case, which you can get if you play up everything that Mark Byers ever did wrong. And he he did many things wrong in his life. He was not a he was a a, a troubled soul in many ways. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure his soul was that trouble. Maybe his soul wasn't that trouble, but, you know, his body got him in a lot of trouble. And he's, he's a large, large, very large man. And he was involved in drug dealings and just other other uh, enterprises that involved, you know, poor judgment. And uh, all that was jettisoned for the Devil's Knot movie, which is... As I recall, and I've only been able to sit through it one and a half times, I really couldn't sit through the whole thing again. I need to do that. I need to force myself to actually sit and watch it. I just find it incredibly boring and uninvolving. But uh, it involves uh, Ron Lax, of all people. It was a, a guy who you know, and volunteered himself for the case as if he's doing, you know, he's a do-gooder, and then he ends up sending a bill to the court for his do-good deed, his do-good-isms, his good deeds. There was nothing pro bono about this. After the penalty phase hearing, starting the morning of Saturday March 19th, the jury spent over two hours deciding on sentencing, which isn't a whole lot of time, but they'd had a full dose of Damien Eccles up to that point. They imposed the death penalty on Eccles, perceived as the ringleader. Baldwin was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, the convictions were unanimous, unanimously affirmed by an appeal by the Arkansas Supreme Court, which rejected 44 points of appeal. And of course, you're going to have, anytime you have a death penalty case, it's going to be appealed. Uh, it's just it's just the way things are done. Uh, their arguments, I'm sure some of the arguments had some more strength than others, but none of them found favor with the the Arkansas Supreme Court, if this was a totally corrupt, inept, just totally badly run, corrupt criminal trial, then the Arkansas Supreme Court signed off on that. And the fact it was none of those things, it certainly wasn't a, it wasn't a tr case that was investigated perfectly wasn't prosecuted perfectly. The trial, the, the trial judge didn't rule perfectly in all instances, I'm sure. But overall, it was done in a professional manner, uh, very much in keeping with how criminal trials are usually run. Criminal investigation, prosecutions, trials are usually run. Not that this is a usual case, but you know, as much as you could apply usual standards to a very unusual case, it was a usual case. Well, the killings up to, as far as at that time. Now, what's happened since then makes it very unusual. And we'll get into that in just a second here. While the killings and the trials had extensive media coverage regionally in 1993 and 94, Eccles, Baldwin, and Miskelly were languishing in prison and largely forgotten by 1995. In other words, once they put them away, nobody gave them much thought. 
I mean, I was working at the Commercial Appeal at the time, the newspaper that was the largest newspaper close to there in Memphis. Uh, you know, anything that came up with the West Memphis Three, we were going to cover it fairly extensively. And I just don't recall anything in particular. Once they were convicted, that was pretty much it for a long time with the West Memphis Three. Uh, so if anybody was going to cover anything from about that case, it would have been the Commercial Appeal, the West Memphis Evening Times, which I later worked at many years later, and uh, Arkansas Times, which is where Mara Leverett worked. And not a lot going on between 94 and 96. Then in 1996, the HBO documentary Paradise Lost brought national attention to the case. It featured extensive footage from the investigation and trials. Um, filmmakers Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sinofsky won praise from critics for their presentation of what many interpreted as a prosecution based on false premises, marked by questionable practices by the police, prosecutors, and the presiding judge. Much of the evidence against Eccles in particular just a second much of the evidence against Eccles in particular was available to the filmmakers but they chose to present a movie somewhat slanted to the defendants the film was a hit and drew the interest of various social justice advocates <coughs> and pop celebrities who eventually formed a loosely allied nationwide community known as supporters of the West Memphis Three. Yeah, you know, I made an error in my recording and I had about probably 30 or 40 minutes of talk that... Uh, just simply neglected to properly record but I see I've gone 25 or 30 minutes so far so I'm going to stop it here at this episode and pick it up again uh, where I left off not a perfect place to leave but not the worst either uh, until then wishing you all well check in again uh, soon for the case against with Gary Meese all about the West Memphis Three case, which we are rapidly nearing the conclusion of, I think. Until then, uh, best wishes. <laughs>